Well, friends, I want to again welcome you tonight. And if you haven't been with us here this December, we've been uh, in the midst of a great sermon series looking at the topic of Advent apologetics. Uh, If you're not familiar with the term apologetics, it comes from a Greek word, apologia, which means to give a defense. It, It was a legal term used in reference to a lawyer arguing a case in a courtroom. And Christian apologetics is really about making a case for why we believe what we believe as followers of Jesus. And so this month of December, on Sunday mornings, we've been doing different topics, looking at questions like, is Christmas credible? Uh, Does Christmas really have pagan origins? Uh, And then tonight, we're going to be looking at the topic of the baby that changed the world. What impact did Jesus Christ make in human history? So I'm excited about this evening. It's going to be a great topic for us to look at as we reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray and ask God's blessing as we turn our attention to uh, his word and the, the message of Christmas tonight. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the joy of being gathered together here this Christmas Eve. We are here because of you, Jesus. We're here because of who you are and what you've done for us. And tonight we celebrate you. We celebrate your birthday. We celebrate your love and your goodness and your amazing grace. And we want you to be honored and glorified tonight as we gather to to remember all that you've done and who you are. Tonight, God, as we look at this topic of how you changed the world by sending your son, Jesus Christ, to, to come into this earth, Lord. I pray that you would open our eyes in new ways to understand the meaning and power and significance of not just Christmas, but but really Jesus' entire life and ministry and all that he did for us. And so, God, we commit this time to you. We ask your blessing on it, praying this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I'm a, I'm a big history buff. I, I love history. Uh, I'm usually reading some kind of history book in my free time. And uh, there's lots of interesting lessons you can look, look, uh, discover by looking at the past. This week, I, I got the idea, you know, we're here at the end of 2021. And, and I started thinking to myself, I wonder what, what life was like 100 years ago. You know, what was life like here in America for those You know, people celebrating Christmas in 1921. And so I did some research this week, and I I came up with some interesting statistics about what life was like in 1921. Here's a picture I found online from our neighbors over in Wisconsin, Main Street, Cassville, Wisconsin, 1921. But listen to these statistics about life in America in 1921. The average life expectancy was 60 years for men, and 61 years for women. According to the IRS, the average income that year was $2,938.56. The average American paid $107.98 in income tax that year. Farming was the most common job in America. Only 35% of homes had electricity. Less than 8% of homes had refrigerators. 15% of households owned a car. In fact, you could purchase a Model T Ford in 1921 for $310. The price of gas was 26 cents a gallon. The maximum speed limit in most cities, 12 miles per hour. (laughs) Ladies, 
70% of women gave birth at home in 1921. And the leading causes of death in America that year, the top three, pneumonia, influenza, and tuberculosis. Only 51% of American children were enrolled in school. Over half of the nation had less than an 8th grade education. Less than 6% of men and 4% of women had attained a college degree. The American flag had just 48 stars. Crossword puzzles had recently become a phenomenon in the U.S. newspapers. If you went to the grocery store, you could buy a pound of sugar for four cents. You could buy a pound of bacon for 10 cents. And you could buy a dozen eggs for 14 cents. Alcohol was illegal under the United States Constitution, according to the 18th Amendment. But at the same time, you could go down to your local drugstore and buy heroin or morphine over the counter. The Woolworth Building in New York City was the world's tallest building at 792 feet, nearly 2,000 feet shorter than today's present record holder. And a recent cross-country flying record was sent. World War I flying ace in 1921, Edward, Edward Rickenbacker, set a cross-country flight record flying from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. in just over 33 hours. Wow. Friends, what a difference a century makes. Things sure have changed in the past hundred years. You know, it's interesting when we look back on history and think about all that has changed and, and the differences that we experience today. But I want us to think about this evening, what if instead of just going back a hundred years, what if we turned the clock back 2,000 years? What, what if we could transport ourselves tonight in a time machine and, and go back to the era before Jesus Christ? What would we observe? What would we experience? What was history like before Jesus came into the world and split history into B.C. and A.D.? Well, I want you to try and imagine this evening a very different world, a much darker world, a world without hospitals, public education, universities, modern science, civil liberties, representative government, and free enterprise. A world where slavery is commonplace, women are commodities, children are expendable, rights are granted by rulers, and personal conscience is irrelevant. A world devoid of charities, orphanages, food shelves, homeless shelters, nursing homes, and churches. A world where vengeful and capricious gods rule. Religion is rooted in fear. The cross is an instrument of torture. The hope of Easter is unknown, and Christmas has never been celebrated. Imagine, friends, a world without Jesus. Yes, everything I just mentioned was absolutely foreign to this world prior to Jesus Christ 
It's no exaggeration to say that the birth of the one that we celebrate here tonight ushered in the greatest transformation of humanity this world has ever seen. The impact of Jesus Christ is undeniable. As the great Ralph Waldo Emerson once declared, Jesus' name has literally been plowed into the history of the world. It's impossible to escape his influence. His imprint is everywhere. Even here in Minnesota. Every time I drive through St. Paul, I'm reminded of Jesus' greatest evangelist, the Apostle Paul. My children were born in Maplewood at a hospital named for Jesus' closest friend, St. John's. Every time I canoe the St. Croix River, I'm reminded that it's named for the cross of Jesus Christ. Every time I look at a calendar or date a check, I'm reminded of Jesus' birthday, literally marking the days of my life by the era known as A.D., Anno Domini the year of our Lord. What was it, friends, about Jesus Christ? What, what was it about this baby we celebrate this evening, the one who, who entered this world in such humble circumstances, yet became, as H.G. Wells described him, the dominant figure in all of history? Friends, I'd like for us to consider this question this afternoon. What was so unique about Jesus? To do this, I want to highlight four ways that Jesus brought a revolution to our world. Three ways that Jesus revolutionized our experience of life on this planet. The, the first revolution I want to highlight this evening is the fact that Jesus brought to the world a revolution of humanity. A revolution of human dignity. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson opened the Declaration of Independence with these now famous words. He said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Friends, over the next 200 years, these words would inspire an advancement of human rights among countless millions around the world. An advancement of rights this world had never before known. But friends, Jefferson's self-evident truths weren't always so obvious to the world. In fact, to the ancients, the inalienable rights that we take for granted were truly foreign concepts. In ancient Greece and Rome, for example, all people were born into a preordained social order as masters or slaves. All men weren't created equal. As the Greek philosopher Aristotle explained, for, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. And the examples of how this worldview played out in the ancient world are numerous and tragic. Yet something happened between Aristotle and Jefferson that would forever change the world's view of humanity. Humanity. 
You see, a Jewish teacher named Jesus came. And Jesus would affirm the Old Testament teaching that God created all people in His image. And because of this, each and every person is instilled with incalculable dignity and worth. Furthermore, Jesus made clear the value that God places on humanity when He revealed His reason for coming into this world. In John 3.16, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, how much are you worth to God? You are so loved and so valuable to God that He literally sent His Son into this world willing to give His one and only Son for your salvation. And not just sending Him into this world, but sending Him to die on a cross for our sins so that we could come back into a right relationship with our Creator God. That's how much God loved this world. And friends, it was this understanding of the value of all people in the eyes of God that began a revolution that would forever transform the world's vision of humanity. It was a revolution started by Jesus Christ. The, the second revolution that Jesus brought into our world was a revolution of compassion. A revolution of compassion. In, in an interesting episode in Jesus' life, Jesus found himself in a debate with some of the Jewish teachers of the law. And some of these teachers asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? The, the Gospel of Matthew records this conversation for us. They, they said to Jesus, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Luke, in his gospel, he gives us another account of the same story. But, but Luke tells us that one of these religious scholars followed up this point by asking Jesus, but Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus went on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. The story of a Jewish man who was traveling down the road, and he was ambushed by bandits. And these bandits beat him and left him for dead and stole all of his possessions. And he was lying on the roadside, battered and bloodied. And Jesus says that a Jewish priest came walking down the road. And this Jewish priest saw the man beaten and bloodied on the side of the road, but the Jewish priest did not stop. The Jewish priest walked right on by. And then Jesus shared that a Levite came walking down the road. And, and the Levites were a, a set-apart, holy class in, in Israel. They were the class from which the priests were drawn. And, and this Levite came walking down the road. And he saw the man laying in the ditch, beaten and bloodied and, and bruised. But this Levite also walked right on by. And then Jesus said, a third man came. And this man was a Samaritan. And the Samaritans were the, were the hated enemies of the Jews. For, for hundreds of years, the Jews and the Samaritans despised one another. 
But yet, as the Samaritan came and saw this man lying in the road, bloodied and battered, it was the Samaritan who stopped and bandaged the man's wounds and picked him up and carried him to the nearest town and paid an inn to house him and care for his needs until he was well again. And after telling this story, Jesus asked the Jewish scholars in Luke 10, 36-37, which of these three men proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the religious scholar said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Friends, it was from teachings like these from Jesus, coupled with his ministry of love and mercy for the outcasts of the world, that inspired a revolution of compassion, the likes of which humankind had never seen. In 165 AD, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, the city of Rome was struck with a devastating plague. Many historians believe it was smallpox. And and at the height of this plague, 5,000 people a day were dying in the city of Rome. 5,000 people a day. Historical accounts report that dead bodies littered the streets. Families abandoned their sick relatives. And masses of people fled to the countryside trying to escape this deadly outbreak. But there was in Rome at this time a peculiar people. A people who chose not to abandon their friends, family, and neighbors. Rather, these people remained in the city, indiscriminately caring for the sick and dying, even when it cost them their own lives. You see, these people followed a man who touched lepers and welcomed the unclean. A man who taught us to care for the least of these and that this was the highest expression of love for God. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 25, 35 through 40, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Friends, understand these teachings of Jesus ushered in a revolution of compassion, the likes of which this world had never seen. It was these teachings of Jesus that ultimately gave rise to the reality of hospitals and orphanages and nursing homes and food shelves and homeless shelters and countless charities around the world. It was all because of Jesus. A third revolution that Jesus brought into the world was a revolution of liberty. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy shared these powerful words in his inaugural address to the nation. He said, the world is very different now. For man holds in his mortal hands the power to abolish all forms of human poverty 
and all forms of human life. And yet the same revolutionary beliefs for which our forefathers fought are still at issue around the globe. The belief that the rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Hear that again, friends. The rights of man come not from the generosity of the state, but from the hand of God. Friends, this statement, a truth which formed the basis for the founding of our American Republic, is rooted directly in the teachings of Jesus Christ. You see, prior to Jesus Christ, concepts like civil liberties and freedom of conscience and representative government, these were essentially foreign to the world. Before Jesus, the vast majority of people lived under a situation where the state was all-powerful, emperors ruled by the mandate of the gods, and whatever privileges were to be gained were granted at the whims of the sovereign. But then Jesus came. And Jesus warned his followers about the lust for power. Jesus said, beware the yeast of Herod. And he declared the revolutionary truth that there are some things in this world that don't belong to the state. Jesus said in Mark 12, 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They marveled at him. Such a simple statement, yet one that would literally change political philosophy for the next 2,000 years. Why did the people marvel at this statement? It was because the idea that there are things that are not Caesar's was a revolution of human liberty. These simple words became the cornerstone upon which our Western freedoms were built. Within 200 years of Jesus' statement, the early church father, Tertullian, would begin arguing for freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. By the 4th century, Augustine of Hippo was identifying limits to state power, and Bishop Ambrose of Milan would publicly rebuke the Roman emperor, declaring limits to state power, and that right and wrong are dictated by God, and that God's commands apply equally to the emperor and to citizens alike. 500 years after that, an English king named Alfred the Great, drawing on the teachings of Moses and the golden rule of Jesus, laid the foundation of English common law. In 1215, the British Magna Carta was drafted, rooted in the principles of the New Testament, explicitly declaring that there is no king that is above the law. 500 years after that, in the late 1700s, men named Jefferson, Madison, and Hamilton, inspired by the revolution Jesus had begun, would draft a document codifying the limits of government power and enumerating the rights of its citizens. And 245 years has gone by since that time. And in those 245 years, others named Lincoln and Roosevelt and Churchill and Gandhi and King and so many more would all point to Jesus Christ and his teachings as the basis for championing human liberty and freedom all over the world.
Yes, friends, the impact of Jesus Christ on the cause of freedom around the world is undeniable. Just imagine this afternoon how different this world would be without Jesus. Just imagine how dark it could be again if we should forsake his teaching. But friends, there's one last revolution Jesus inspired that we must not miss this afternoon. The most important revolution of all. You see, Jesus brought a revolution of religion. This past September, I saw a story on the news that caught my attention. Thirty-nine Canadian miners found themselves trapped a mile underground in a mine in Ontario, Canada. This just happened a couple months ago. The mine shaft had collapsed and the, the cart that they used to transport the miners was blocking the shaft and there was only one way out of the mine shaft. It was to climb the safety ladders that ran up and down vertically a mile in length from where the miners were trapped. And over the course of the next two days, these 39 men made this arduous climb, a mile vertical climb trying to attain safety. By God's grace, they made it out. As I reflected on the plight of these miners, I couldn't help but think of the many religions in our world today. And not just today, but throughout history. Religions holding out to men and women the hope of appeasement with the gods. The, the prospect of paradise. The possibility of enlightenment but all of them declaring it is we who must make the climb. We are responsible for bridging the chasm. We must earn our way. See, friends, the reality is, is this is ultimately what religion is all about. Religion is about men and women seeking reconciliation with God through our own good works, through our rituals, through our sacrifices, through our money. It's about our human efforts to climb out of the guilt and ugliness and burdens of this world and somehow find peace. But here's the problem. The Bible tells us that religion can never deliver on its promise. Because there's no religion in this world that has a ladder capable of bringing us back to God. You see, the Bible tells us that God is holy. And we are not. In Romans 3.23, the Apostle Paul tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glory. What does Paul mean? He means that God is morally perfect. He is holy. He is pure. He is righteous. He knows no sin and he cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And Paul tells us that each and every one of us in our rebellion against God's holy will find ourselves separated from Him. Find ourselves alienated from Him. And we cannot bridge that chasm. Now there might be some here tonight who think, well, Jason, you know, I, I'm, I'm basically a good guy. Right? I mean, like, I, I, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I, I live a pretty moral life. I, I don't hurt anybody. And, and yet the Apostle Paul anticipated that objection. And in Romans 3.10, the Apostle Paul tells us, no, I'm sorry, there is no one righteous. No, not one. Every single one of us in our rebellion have sinned against our holy creator, God. See, friends, that's our problem. 
because of our sin. The, the chasm between us and God is simply too great. And no religion has a ladder that can reach. We, we cannot climb our way out of this dilemma. And yet here is where Jesus' greatest revolution, revolution is realized. Where the promise of Christmas makes all the difference. Because 2,000 years ago, a baby was born into this world. Sent on mission from God. And this baby, this Messiah, this Jesus... He, he didn't simply show us another ladder to climb, but rather he declared that he was the ladder. And he himself had made the climb for us. And in him was true rescue. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, what we earn for our sin, the payment for our sin is death. Our rebellion against God leads to death. Separation from God in this life, but eternally separated from God. But the good news of Christmas, friends, is that God has given us a gift. A free gift. The gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The one who was the perfect substitute and sacrifice for our rebellion against God. The one who died the death that we deserve to die. The one who loved us so much that He took this upon Himself. He died that death. He paid that price. He was our substitute. And so when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, the free gift of God given for our salvation, God applies the penalty that Jesus took on our behalf. He applies it to Jesus, not to us. And when we trust in Jesus, the shed blood of Jesus covers us so that God no longer sees the ugliness of our sin and our rebellion, but God sees the blood of His Son that covers our sins. And because of Jesus, we can be reconciled back into a relationship with our Creator God. And the Bible says this is God's gift to us. It's God's gift to each of us this Christmas. But you see, friends, here's the interesting thing about the nature of a gift. See, first and foremost, a gift is something freely given. We know that God has freely given us this gift. But the second part of a gift is that it has to be received, right? And each and every one of us here need to make that choice. Will we receive God's gift, His gift of amazing grace, given to bring us back into a right relationship with Him? Friends, have you received that gift? Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? This is ultimately what Christmas is all about. It's God's gift of life to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, Christmas really is a celebration of the baby that changed the world. But the greatest change that Jesus came to make is the one that takes place within each of our hearts when we trust in Him.
Friends, my prayer for you tonight is that you wouldn't miss out on the true joy of Christmas. My prayer for you tonight is that you wouldn't miss out on the gift of Jesus Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. This Christmas especially, for the great gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, who literally transformed human history in so many ways, but most significantly came to give us the gift of new life with you. Life abundant here and now and eternal life forevermore in your presence. Lord, we thank you that you were not content to leave us lost in our sin and rebellion, seeking to somehow climb our way out of the desperate plight of this world, but yet you came and you made the way for us by going to the cross and dying for our sins and giving us the opportunity to receive the gift of new life that comes through you. Jesus, I thank you for how you've changed my life as a result of that gift. I thank you for how you've changed so many others' lives here in this room tonight as a result of that gift. But it's no stretch of the imagination tonight, Jesus, to think that there might be somebody here right now or even watching online who has yet to receive that gift of amazing grace, who's yet to trust in you as the one who brings salvation and reconciliation with God. And so, Jesus, I pray right now that if there's anybody here tonight who hasn't yet trusted in you, that they might just say a simple prayer, something like, Lord Jesus, I know I've rebelled against you. I know I've sinned against you. And tonight I want to accept the gift of forgiveness, the gift of new life that comes through your amazing grace. I want to know the true joy of Christmas tonight, Jesus. And so I trust in you. And friends, I promise if you pray that prayer, God will come and live within you and you can know the real joy of Christmas. You can experience a Merry Christmas no matter the circumstances of your life. Because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your great name. Amen.